This is Macro Horizons, episode 37, Falling into Uncertainties, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of September 23rd. As autumn begins and our attention turns toward Halloween, please keep an eye out for any three-pack of Boris Johnson costumes. A variety of sizes needed. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. Fed giveth, White House taketh. Ian, what do you thinketh? Frankly, I think that we're going to be in a relatively definable range for the Treasury market for the time being. The Fed delivered the as-anticipated 25 basis point rate cut. Powell left the door open for another 25 basis point move later this year. Whether that's in October or December still remains to be seen. I think the most important takeaway from the Fed meeting is that the fine-tuning campaign, as it's currently being envisioned, is coming to an end sometime soon. If the Fed had pushed back more aggressively on what the market was pricing in terms of another quarter point by the end of the year, I think that that would have been a bigger shock for the market than any incremental hawkishness that we did see. In fact, by not addressing what's priced into the market, the Fed has given a tacit acknowledgement that that's probably how things are going to play out. That unto itself wasn't much of a surprise. Taking a look at the beloved dot plot, the median expectation suggests that there is still a fair amount of discord around whether or not that final quarter point will be delivered. But at the end of the day, we expect that we will actually see the preemptive easing continue in the fourth quarter with a final quarter point. So what does this all mean for the outright level of yields? The net price action was effectively zero in 10s and 30s, which we will attribute to a reasonable performance on the part of the chair in that he simply met expectations and didn't rock the proverbial boat. We remain biased to see some additional upward pressure on rates. Again, nothing dramatic, but maybe another 20-25 basis points in upside for 10s. The funding pressure that we saw in the very front end of the market was very topical and really brought up concerns that the Fed will need to start expanding the balance sheet more quickly than previously anticipated. This isn't necessarily a big macro concern. However, it did lead to a few notable dislocations in the repo market. Looking further toward the end of the year, there is a tendency for economic data to come in better than anticipated, which corresponds with the typical seasonal patterns into the new year. And in that context, the return of animal spirits, supporting equities, 
weighing on the Treasury market is our base case scenario. That isn't to suggest that we expect a clear resolution for the trade war or the economic uncertainties being faced in Europe to not eventually trickle through to sentiment in the U.S., but rather that the extremes comparable to what we saw at the end of August, beginning of September, when 10-year yields dipped below 150, will continue to be taken out of the system. Let us not forget that inflation has ostensibly returned, at least in the core CPI series. Any flow through between CPI and PCE will be notable, although the relative stability of the year-over-year PCE figures are notable, as is the typical divergence between core CPI, which is running much higher on a year-over-year basis than core PCE. Nonetheless, as an important backdrop for the Fed, and of course the break-evens market, we'll be looking for any insight that inflation has started to further pick up. This is important context given that the Fed is actively cutting rates and undergoing an active campaign to redefine how the market considers the Fed's relationship with inflation going forward. So now that the Fed is behind us, how are you thinking about the way the curve, the way yields, the way the treasury market will trade into your end? Well, the Fed did a very good job of threading the needle between delivering a 25 basis point rate cut and not really pushing back against the consensus for one more for a 75 basis point aggregate of easing in this fine tuning cycle. So the market to a large extent has priced that in. We actually saw a remarkably muted response to the Fed in the treasury market, and that's pretty telling. That is confirmation that the market, to some extent, has moved beyond the first series of rate cuts and is now poised to begin responding to external developments such as the increased geopolitical tensions. Obviously, the trade war remains a key background factor. And let us not forget Brexit, non-Brexit, deal, no deal, will continue to drive risk sentiment at least until we get past the October 31st date at this point. In that context, we continue to see the balance of risks skewed towards higher rates into the end of the year, but nothing dramatic. One of my biggest concerns is the backup in rates that we saw at the beginning of September will represent the most bearish the market will get at this point. Nonetheless, I still think there's a reasonable chance that we see a two-handle on tens, and any shot at 225 will prove a great buying opportunity, as there still remains plenty of overseas buying interest for treasuries. One thing I've been watching is the drift higher in the Global Economic Surprise Index. It seems that the pendulum, not just domestically, but globally, has also started to swing a little bit back towards optimism. How much further this can go, I think, is a very outstanding question. And it's pretty telling that even with a pretty substantial swing in that series, tends back to 1.9%. Yes, agreed that we could see this press further into the 2% land. But at the end of the day, the Fed just cut interest rates below 2% and doesn't look to be in any hurry of hiking and even the foreseeable future. It's worth noting that there's a reasonable amount of seasonality in the surprise index, particularly in the U.S. And what we tend to see is we tend to see the last four months of the year 
being skewed towards an improvement in the surprise index. So positive momentum into the end of the year. Again, very consistent with the seasonal patterns that we've been focused on, as well as the notion that the peak of economic skepticism may have passed for the moment. So what do you make of that seasonality? I can see two takeaways. Is One, there's a natural seasonality in economic activity. People buy more, spend more, whatever, in different parts of the year. The other is it could just be a weird seasonal adjustment in the underlying data that isn't captured well in the economic forecasts, leading to a little bit of bias over time. I'd actually argue that it's more consistent with the patterns that we tend to see in terms of how each calendar year is approached. We almost invariably bring in a degree of optimism. People have sat down, crunched the numbers, made their estimates for the next year, year and a half, and then throughout the course of the year, the economic realities really start to take hold and where firms or economists or market watchers might have been projecting another great year in one way, shape, or form, those ambitions tend to be revised a bit lower. Now, there are plenty of things to point to over the course of the last five or six years that might have triggered that whether it was the trade war, whether it was the struggles in emerging markets that we saw during 2015. Going back even further, the earthquake in Japan, I recall certainly recasting the market's expectations for that particular year's worth of economic growth. So I would say that sure, there is some degree of an inaccuracy in measuring the economic data, but there is also a baseline animal spirits versus investor anxiety back and forth that tends to play out throughout the course of the year. I also wonder, and this might be thinking too hard about economic modeling, but you tend to see this drift towards optimism or steady state equilibria. One other way that we saw that was to return to the Fed and the SEP dots out in 2021 and 2022, they penciled in a base case of one hike each of those two years. I'm not really taking that seriously. To me, that's just more an indication that the underlying models the Fed use suggest that they're forecasting unemployment to remain low. Well, of course, the Phillips curve logic means that's going to push up inflation and we're going to have to hike going forward. That doesn't mean that's actually what's going to happen. It just kind of means that implicit in the modeling is a return to whatever those put out as trend. And I kind of wonder if sometimes when you see these seasonal reassessments of forecasts, something like that might be playing out as well. And also, let us not forget, within the Fed's own projections, there's this implied best case scenario because they're not accounting for anything as dramatic as the sell-off in equities that we saw in the fourth quarter of last year, because if they had been, presumably we'd see a series of rate cuts priced in in 2020, which were not reflected in the dots. John, it's something you've touched on previously, and Powell mentioned in the press conference that the forecasts and the dots are reliant on exactly that, forecasts. So that intrinsic optimism implies that even though we have a flat path of policy over the next two years, that kind of by definition is a best case scenario, which is why I think all three of us are still of the mind that we still will get at least one more cut. Yes, I certainly agree with that. The other observation that I would make is over the course of the time that the Fed has been publishing these forward rate and growth expectations, we have seen a steady decline, particularly in the Fed's 
longer run rate projection. Obviously, growth has been skewed somewhat lower as well. So the other takeaway that I would add to your point, John, is that we have actually seen a compression of growth and inflation expectations, and along with that, a lower policy rate environment, which has translated through to a lower treasury yield environment, one which I expect will be here to stay for quite some time. If we look at the last five or six years, there's effectively been a 100 to 125 basis point range for 10-year yields. Sometimes we're up against the top of that range, 2018 as an example, when 10-year yields touched 325 and the equity market cracked, and sometimes we're at the lower end of that range. This summer, in fact, we got as low as 143, right up against the all-time record low for 10-year yields of 132. So while the range theory continues to hold, I would argue that the events of 2019 have simply recast the range lower. And Ian, just circling back to something you said a little bit earlier, I think it's important to remember that after 10s reached that 143 level, we saw a 47 basis point pickup in yield. So I think that is a further testament, exactly as you say, that perhaps the pessimism got a little bit ahead of itself at the end of summer. Reaching below 150 in 10-year yields was quite a bullish achievement. And the fact that as we keep highlighting, the domestic data remains good, the Fed is acting preemptively, and generally speaking, the US economy is doing okay. It makes sense that we will see some give back. I think the argument could be made that that is what we saw in the first three weeks of September, but it'll be interesting to see how the fourth quarter plays out in data terms. And just at a higher level, when I try to think of, you know, even approximating fair value for some amount of treasuries, one thing that you can rely on is an anchor in the form of the longer run dot that we discussed earlier. That longer run dot has come down dramatically over the past several years and is the median's currently at 250. One member even submitted at 2%, which at face value is pretty fascinating just because presumably longer run inflation is assumed to be 2%. So you're assuming zero real rates at a neutral standing. That's kind of a fascinating line of thought. But more generally, you know, when I think of what the treasury curve should be pricing short rates or say the one year, nine years from now. So you can look at the nine year forward one year, you know, call that ballpark 2%, 2.5, maybe you could push it a little bit lower if you have a flight to quality or negative term premia. What we've seen in the past few weeks is a return to more normal levels in that range. So the longer run dot is currently serving as a strong anchor in order to keep the curve a little bit more upward sloping than we're seeing in other sovereign debt markets. So taking a step back even further, I think it's fascinating to think about interest rates in the context of the last 30 years, we spend a fair amount of time talking about this newly established lower range for 10-year yields, call it effectively 125 to 225 over the course of the next six or eight months. But if we think about the 90s or we think about the 2000s, 10-year yields were in a materially higher range. Now, that's not entirely because of growth. That's not entirely because of the inflation profile. In fact, I will make the argument that over the course of the last 30 years, we have seen an increase in central banking transparency, which has been accompanied by, over time, an increase in central banking credibility. Now, that credibility is primarily limited to 
banks' ability to fight inflation rather than deflation, and in part combined with the demographic issues, is why we have seen the push towards negative rates in Japan, the push towards negative rates in Europe, and why the conversation that we're presently having is based on the assumption that Fed funds will fluctuate between zero and 2.4%, rather than in the past, the conversation would be between zero and 6%. If not 18% like in the 80s. Oh, the 80s. Such good music. On a bit of a side note, what do you think Powell listens to before the FOMC press conference? I kind of like the thought of him listening to Purple Rain putting on his purple tie. I think he's probably listening to When Doves Cry. I love Bruno Mars. Ugh. Bring it back down to earth. You know, this past week has obviously been extraordinarily volatile in funding markets. Things seem to have calmed down a bit, but... Where we should be moving towards next, the focal point will be quarter end. And quarter end is only several days away. Ian, how are you thinking about secured markets over the next week or so? Uh, John, you'll be surprised to learn that I actually do not spend a great deal of time thinking about secured markets. However, the repo market has had its day, and I think that this is a very, very good opportunity to quickly talk about some of the dynamics that will be playing out into quarter end. The Fed has not announced a standing repo facility, although they have been in the market several times with $75 billion operations to provide a little bit of extra liquidity as needed. Now, one of the questions becomes, what does quarter end look like? Are there significant dislocations? Are things bad enough that the Fed ultimately ends up moving to a standing repo facility? John, what is your take? Another way of phrasing that, I guess, for me is, say on the 27th, that's Friday, and we have quarter end on Monday. Does the Fed announce that they'll be in the market on Monday? This week, they seem to announce their operation for the next day at about 4 o'clock p.m. If they don't, at what point might they signal a willingness to intervene on that Monday morning? These are a lot of important questions, and the timing of these announcements, the timing of the operation, and uh, frankly, a lot of clarity on what to expect will be helpful in alleviating concerns. Nobody wants to see a repeat of this week, I don't think it should be as bad, but it certainly will be getting a lot of attention. Well, it's also important to keep in mind that on Wednesday of the last week of September is the end of the reserve maintenance period. And we do tend to see dislocations around that, at least we have at certain periods in history. You know, I never thought funding markets would almost overshadow an SEP FOMC week. What a week. Don't do repo. Don't tell Powell. Do do repo? In the week ahead, the Treasury market will work on defining the current trading range. We've been in a relatively clear zone over the course of the last several weeks, the bottom in 10-year yields being 143 and 190 representing the upside. The shape of the curve, particularly twos tens, has been more intriguing in part because it appeared, at least for a moment, that the cyclical re-steepening that we have been anticipating had taken hold. Alas, the move was only short-lived, and we have returned back toward the zero bound in twos tens. The risk of inversion is still high, and the implications, particularly for market sentiment, and what that might say about the real economy over the course of the next 12 months, will remain highly relevant. 
It's worth highlighting that over the course of the last two or three months, we have seen evidence backing up the anecdotes that Japanese investors are back actively buying in the treasury market. As Japan is the largest foreign holder of treasuries, participation from the region in the market is important. If for no other reason than given current hedging costs, the assumption is that Japanese investors are buying on an unhedged basis. Now that is a clear vote of confidence for treasuries as an asset class and also a reflection of the realities that negative yields are plaguing a great deal of the sovereign debt market at the moment. In terms of real economic data in the week ahead, we have spending and personal income on Friday. In light of the concentration within the U.S. economy on the consumer and the importance of consumer confidence and spending to driving the next leg of the expansion, we'll be particularly attuned for any evidence that this summer's uncertainties have flowed through to spending in the month of August. We're interpreting the Fed's reluctance to push back against the additional 25 basis points worth of rate cuts that are priced into the market before year-end as a tacit acceptance of this consensus. That assumption could be challenged by a variety of incoming Fed speak that we have on the docket. Between Bullard, Evans, Kaplan, Kashkari, and Harker this week, we'll be looking for further confirmation that fine-tuning has been defined, as it were. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. With a reflection on the other type of repo and an early career adventure, we're reminded that while possession might be nine-tenths of the law, repossession is the all-important other-tenth. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests. 
including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.